everyone. Uh, welcome to SOAS. Um, I'm Angelica Basquera, the manager of the Center of African Studies. Um, the Center of African Studies, together with the SOAS China Institute and the Young China Watchers, um, is uh, organizing uh, this event tonight. So we're very pleased to see so many of you here. I will just briefly uh, introduce the speaker and the discussant and then I will leave it to them to um, run the event. And um, we will have space for Q&A at the end of the, of the speeches. And also, <coughs> at the end of the event, there will be a small reception in the foyer outside. So stay on um, for that as well. I am pleased to introduce our speaker, uh, Dr. Carlos Oya, um, here on my left. Uh, Dr. Carlos Oya is reader in the political economy of development at SOAS. And um, he has worked uh, uh, for several years in the government of Mozambique. His expertise started um, in Mozambique and in particular uh, looking at uh, rural labor market and rural poverty. And he also worked for the uh, finance department, uh, finance ministry uh, in Mozambique, as well as been um, a lecturing at the um, University of Eduardo Mondlane um, in Mozambique, as well as the Universitat Complutense in Madrid. His main research interests are the political economy of development, uh, development policy, political economy of liberalization and agrarian reform, uh, as well as rural labor uh, markets and development aid. And uh, more recently, um, he has been awarded a large um, grant from the um, economic um, ESRC and uh, the DFID. Uh, is a project that looked at the um, employment impact of Chinese firms in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and in fact, Carlos Soy has become over the last few years our main expert in um, uh, looking at the relationship between China and Africa, and uh, that's why he's here tonight. Uh, our discussant, uh, Raffaello Pantucci, uh, is a co-founder of the Young China Watchers, as I mentioned earlier, one of the partners of um, this event tonight. And we're very pleased to work uh, with the Young China Watchers for the first time. Um, so Raffaello Pantucci uh, is the co-founder of Young China Watchers and uh, is also the director of uh, the International Security Studies at the Royal United Service Institute, known as RUSI. Uh, based in London. Uh, his research focuses on terrorism and countering terrorism, as well as China relations with its Western neighbors. So again, um, his expertise um, is very much in line with uh, tonight's topic. Uh, prior to coming to Russi, Raffaello lived over, uh, for over three years in Shanghai, where he was a visiting scholar at the Shanghai Academy of Social Science. Um, and before that, he worked in London at the International Institute for S Strategic Studies. Uh, and there will be more and more things I could say <laughs> about both of them. Uh, so you're welcome to check more information um, on their website. But I leave it now to Carlos Oya to start the talk because it's gonna be a fairly um, long presentation. We want to give time to Q&A. So I will stop here and I leave it to Carlos to um, give his presentation. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks so much for having me here again, another <coughs> talk from China Africa. Um, but before I start, I have to blame Angelica uh, for the title. Um, we agreed on having this event, but then she was chasing me persistently, and she caught me on a very stressful day. I was very grumpy, and that's all I 
could come up with. <laughs> Why so much interest in Africa? You can, you can see that there's something behind the title um, um, which suggests that maybe there's far too much interest, but let me just uh, try to explain why. Um, so I've been talking about these things for a number of years, but actually I've never really done primary research on this issue until very recently. So I'm actually now learning a lot, uh, new things which I didn't know. Uh, it is also true that uh, this marks the 10th anniversary of my own interest in the topic. Uh, 10 years ago, I read Chris Alden's book, China in Africa, and I was quite uh, surprised in a way by, uh, by the focus. And I was quite intrigued by many of the things that Chris said at the time. And 10 years later, I have to say that um, things have moved on. Uh, there's new evidence. And probably, you know, the situation now, especially in terms of the scholarship on this topic, is far better than it was 10 years ago. And that's, that's in a sense, good news. So I'm going to um, organize the presentation around three basic blocks. First one, I will try to show you a bit of evidence that there is a lot of interest. Um, and that this interest has been uh, booming in the last 10 years. Uh, then I will move on to questions about actual evidence and how evidence meets or doesn't meet existing perceptions and some of the common narratives that have been dominating in, in, in debate on this, on the China-Africa links. And, and then I will end with some hypotheses about the different sets of interests, you know, why there's such you know, big interest and different reasons why uh, this interest has uh, emerged, especially in the last 10 years. So let me start with you know, providing some evidence of interest. There has been certainly a media reporting boom about the topics, the related topics, particularly since 2005. Uh, of course, there was some reporting before, uh, but when you look at uh, media, uh, particularly international media, but also African media and indeed Chinese media, there's a huge increase in the, in the number of, of uh, news and uh, in-depth reports and all sorts of stories coming up, particularly from certain countries, Sudan, Angola, Ethiopia, the DRC were the usual suspects, but now this has been broadened to many, many other countries. Um, Interestingly, I mean, all of this reporting was, was, was pretty rubbish for some time. Then, now this has been improving. Um, there's something new called the China-Africa Project, which is partly led by journalists, very interesting and quite useful, in fact, and, and does show that things are moving on and evolving. Another evidence, you know, more anecdotal, is the questions in class. Every time I teach about development aid, for some reason, you know, 80% of the questions are about China in Africa and Chinese aid to Africa. They don't talk about, they don't ask me about you know, the governance of aid, of OECD uh, uh, aid complex. They don't ask me about conditionalities, policy space, et cetera, et cetera. It's all about Chinese aid in Africa. So for many students, actually the next big thing, that's what some say. Um, other evidence is requests for events and seminars, like you know, this one, and Angelica's persistence. Now, scholarship. Academics are catching up, yes? So you take Google Scholar, which is one of the main search engines for academic work. You take 1985 to 2000, you put China and Africa in the title, and you get 152 hits, uh, many of which are actually not that relevant to the topic. You do the same for 2001, 2015, you get over 2,000. Okay, this is just academic publications or citations. If you do Google web search, you would get over 200,000 hits. Think 2001, 
And I actually discovered there is a Wikipedia page dedicated to China Africa relations. So that's one thing. Another thing is actually when you look at key output of this scholarship, um, there has been not only an increase, but also an improvement, and I'd say, in the quality of what has been produced by scholars working on this topic. I just mentioned a few cases. Since Chris Alden's book, there, ha there has been many other important books, notably by Deborah Brautigan. She has influenced a lot of what, uh, uh, a lot of my thoughts about this topic. But also Dan Taylor, Lucy Corkin, who did her PhD at SOAS, uh, Fanti Cheru, Gareth Mohan, and, and many others. So the academics are catching up, and we, we sort of get in increasingly more and more empirically grounded uh, research on, on, on China-Africa links. So the interest is, is increasing, but also is moving in the right direction, I think. The politicians, obviously, are also apparently quite interested, and they do react to these new emerging phenomena. So you take Obama, actually, quite recently. He said a few interesting things, basically replicating the very common conventional narrative that has been dominated, for, especially in the early stages of the um, reporting on, on, on China in Africa. So he, he's actually saying, he's quite radical in his, in his perspective, and shows the extent to which, you know, perhaps it is the US, uh, is the country that is most concerned uh, about this rise, of this engaging, uh, rising engagement in Africa, but not only in Africa. Um, and he repeats certain things that are very common in this um, narrative which has permeated a lot of the reporting and some of the scholarship on the topic. It would go some, something like China now provides as much, if not more, aid to Africa than the United States. Much of this aid goes to corrupt and authoritarian regimes. Beijing's main goal is to buy the loyalty of Africa's governing elite and secure access to the continent's rich natural resources. I think many people still probably believe this and tend to agree with this. Then you have sort of the counteracting narrative. Um, this is from China's special envoy to Africa 2014, where again, this kind of thing has been repeated time and again. Africa wants to be treated as an equal, and this is what many Western countries don't understand, or at least are not willing to do. And China at least knows that we have to treat people in Africa as equals. And, you know, win-win narratives and scenarios. So that, you know, gives rise to um, a clash between conventional narratives um, the one that is very frequently coming from, from China, but not only, win-win development, you have industrial zones or the new, brand new airport in Addis and stuff like that. And then you have the other gloomy narrative of you know, Chinese meeting Africa and uh, extracting natural resources like nobody else did before. Now, let me move on to the second part. And, and, and I like evidence, I like data, I don't, I don't like perceptions. Uh, although I, you know, I think perceptions are important, uh, but they don't um, help me understand things. So when I look at the data, I do see certain uh, facts which are um, important and, and striking, and they do give clear evidence of, of rising engagement, of significant and explosion in engagement between Africa, African countries and China. So trade is the most obvious example, okay? Normally, when we look at these relations, we look at trade, investment, aid, and also, you know, increasingly migration, labor migration. So you look at trade, here you go, that's the picture. Um, interesting about this picture is that the trade balance is uh, positive. 
for um, for Africa as a whole. No? Again, you're going to have huge variation in terms of trade balances between individual African countries and, and China. Um, so that's true. Trade has been expanding quite remarkably, uh, much faster than trade uh, between African countries and and, um, and other trading partners. But we also have to admit that it's starting from a very low base. So any time any economist will tell you that, when you look at growth rates, you have to be very careful how to interpret them and, and, and have a clear look at what the base of this growth is. If we look at composition, then this is what we have. But then, you know, some people say, well, China's trade reflects a sort of standard pattern of north-south type of relations. So China, African countries exporting primary commodities, particularly minerals, and China exporting manufactured products. And actually, many of these manufactured products are, are like uh, some of the conventional wisdom would suggest. They're not just simply you know, low-cost consumer goods. The bulk of them, in terms of value, tend to be uh, capital goods uh, or intermediate inputs that go into um, manufacturing, mining, and infrastructure development, particularly in the last uh, few years, in the last five years. So the question is, is this surprising? You know, should anyone be surprised about this, about this kind of trade pattern? I don't think so. If you know the productive capabilities existing in China compared to most African countries, and if you know the uh, growing importance of actually of natural resources and commodities for African countries in general, you know, particularly the 2000s were a sort of uh, um, a time of reverse structural change. We were back to more uh, significance of primary commodities. Um, so there's nothing surprising about that, but that's, that's a fact. So if we move to the other relations, other flows, aid. So is Chinese aid really a threat to the traditional aid establishment? And you can look at it from different points of view. You can look at it in terms of what, what kind of aid, where does it go, and, 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 and why. And also in terms of volumes, you know, that is as important as the composition. So one question that people working in these issues of development aid effectiveness and whether aid is effective or not, I mean, this is a long debate in development economics and, and anyone, you know, think, talking about aid and, and the aid complex. Um, and what we know is that, you know, there are many reasons why aid is not as effective as it should be. And one of the reasons I'm seeing, well, it doesn't really go, it tends not to go to the poorest countries. Why? Because aid <coughs> seems to be, in most cases, yet another instrument for foreign policy, okay? And it, that is not surprising even. Why should donors, donor countries, give aid just pay only based on humanitarian reasons or because other countries are very poor? I mean, this is a rhetoric, but the fact is that most aid agencies, most donor governments give aid in response to some geopolitical or political imperative of some sort. So before I look at China, let me just have a look at the US. So where does US aid go to? Well, that's the who's who of the war on terror. So if you look at the first uh, few, uh, uh, the top five, the top 10, <coughs> it's a very interesting mix of countries, certainly not the 10 poorest countries in the world. And all of these countries basically reflect the basic priorities of US foreign policy and the imperative of national, what we call homeland security. And indeed, development aid from the United States, this is actually even written in, 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 the, in the sort of aid policies, should be subordinate to 
the foreign policy priorities of the country. So that is not surprising. Why should it be surprising that, therefore, the aid flows of other countries, other OECD countries or non-OECD countries, should follow different pattern? And indeed, you know, China should be seen in that from that perspective. Now, what is interesting is that you know, the literature has been evolving a lot, also partly because in 10 years ago, very few people knew anything about Chinese aid. It was very difficult to actually get any reliable data. And actually, we've, we've moved forward quite fast. And now there is a big database out there. And in the last few weeks, you know, some very interesting provocative papers have been published, which show very different pictures. So I'm going to show some of the evidence coming from these new studies about Chinese aid compared to other forms of aid. What is also striking is that those who financed these new data sets, these databases, which are problematic in many ways, and Deborah Brautigan has some issues with them, are not less than the USAID and many other uh, Western agencies, World Bank and so on. So this is a project that is sitting in Washington, has been financed by traditional aid agencies and particularly by USAID. And what the evidence shows is that actually Chinese aid to Africa is strongly oriented towards poorer countries, unlike aid from many other traditional, so-called traditional partners. So that's one, one interesting and striking thing. Reason being that once you, you, know, you compare apples with apples and not apples with bananas, i.e. when you're looking at development aid and not just any form of official finance flow, then you start getting the real picture of things. If people are interested in official flows of finance beyond development aid, then we should compare official flows of finance between China and other uh, Western countries in order to get an accurate picture of these comparisons. This is a map that has been produced by this uh, research team uh, working with basically all sorts of sources of data on projects, aid projects, uh, and official finance projects to Africa from, from China. You see there's a sort of widespread, you know, scattered uh, distribution of projects. Some countries are uh, preferred partners, Ethiopia is one of them, but you see a lot of stuff going on in East Africa, in West Africa, and parts of Southern Africa. Hard to establish a clear correlation between these kinds of flows and the concentration of aid resources and some kind of uh, natural resource extraction imperative or simply some kind of geopolit geopolitical imperative. The other issue that you know, very often uh, comes in this debate, in this clash of narratives, is to what extent Chinese aid, again, previously quite poorly understood, was bad for governance. Now, if you want to show a link between that and governance, then you have to show that you know, the allocation of aid obeys you know, certain uh, um, uh, imperatives and, and sort of follows uh, to countries that are characterized by low or bad governance, by corruption, and so on and so forth. The good governance agenda is quite dominant among traditional aid uh, partners. Um, get a quote there from Mitchell, that he was the previous Secretary of Development at the time, quite adamant that DFID would uh, withdraw, freeze funds to countries that behave badly. Um, this quote also comes from meetings where people say good governance is crucial, but Chinese aid may undermine some of the key gains that have been uh, achieved in the last 15 years of good governance reforms in Africa. Okay, so let's look at the evidence. 
And then comes Bill Easterly, who used to work for the World Bank and doesn't like aid agencies for whatever personal reasons. But he's using facts. I mean, this is published data. He's not making them up. And shows that the share of aid coming from OECD countries to developing countries in general goes in a large proportion to more corrupt countries, at least using the corruption indicators from produced by the World Bank. And what is um, striking is that that increases during the good governance agenda time, i.e. from the late 90s onwards. Um, that's quite shocking. Well, the new data set shows other evidence, which is interesting as well. It shows that if you take China, this is aid, not other finances, this is aid, and you use the um, indicators, which again, very problematic, regime tie between more autocratic and democratic. So green is good, you know, <coughs> yellow is sort of in between, and then red, you're sort of worried. Um, you would expect a lot of red in this graph, and you don't see a lot of red in the graph. And there's a lot of fluctuations, because it does depend on, you know, big projects being signed with Zimbabwe at a given uh, year, and then uh, that, uh, that fading. So you compare that, with the uh, pro-good governance partners, OECD countries, and can you see any big difference? Not so much, less fluctuation, but certainly there isn't a, a, a sheer dominance of green in the picture. So still a lot of aid uh, remains, you know, it's going, and, and that's for 2000 to 2013, um, two countries which you know, might be considered as autocratic or not particularly democratic. I think one clear example of this kind of contradiction is actually Ethiopia. Ethiopia that is, uh, appears in many of these rankings and these indicators as you know, very close to autocratic regimes, does very well in attracting aid from many donors, okay? and particularly from USAID. Now, that's just some evidence, some facts about these contradictions and why these sort of narratives are highly problematic. But there's another issue here, is that even if we abstract from this, the question is volume, okay? Even if Chinese aid was really bad and went, went to very corrupt places and to very autocratic regimes, it would make a massive difference if it, if it was really big. So that would probably create the conditions for a leaders, leaders, elite, etc., to just scrub the good governance agenda altogether. But there's a problem, and the problem is that Chinese aid, again, development aid, not other forms of finance, is not very big, okay? When it compares to both one single, big single uh, um, OECD donor, the US, but also when, particularly when you compare to the block of Western donors. And indeed, these sort of clashes, these sort of uh, uh, polls are always in terms of China versus the West. So you have to look at the OECD donor block uh, as a block. So it would take a huge increase, a huge expansion in the volume of aid coming from China to really make a massive difference in terms of how the international aid architecture works uh, generally, but particularly in, in Africa. And that raises the question as to whether is this actually uh, uh, feasible? Is it true? Is it possible that the Chinese government will be able to continue to expand its aid budget, not other forms of finance, um, as it has done in the last 10 years? I would doubt it for lots of reasons, but certainly, you know, the uh, new economic climate in China and other um, elements may probably uh, drive the uh, growth of aid budgets um, down. Now, 
There is a big difference though, I can see from the data, which is where the money goes. And most of the aid, again, not all the forms of finance, tends to go to economic infrastructure. That is actually new. A lot of the aid from OECD uh, donor block tends to go to other uses, notably in the last 10, 15 years, interestingly, goes to public sector reform or you know, broadly speaking to governance reforms or to social infrastructure, okay? So there is, in a way, uh, a growing perception among policymakers, development experts, that the Chinese, and in fact, not only the Chinese, but other non-OECD donors have a comparative advantage in providing assistance to develop economic basic infrastructure, whereas the other partners will be called upon when, it, when they want to improve, to further improve governance, or when the focus is on health and other forms of social infrastructure. So there might be here uh, potential, or at least uh, um, some discussion about potential division of labor. Um, some might suggest that in fact, this is what some in the OECD donor bloc would like to see uh, from a greater engagement, cooperative engagement with China and other non-OECD donors, okay? So in summary, when we look at the aid relation, we do see differences, we see problems with the perceptions and the narrative. True, there are no policy strings, but you know, this you know, follows the, the, the well-known principle of non-interference. But even within that, there's quite a lot of variation and evolution, as you know, Stephen Chan and Dan Large have shown in relation to um, um, Sudan, in particular, during the conflict and after uh, um, the independence of South Sudan. We do know that there is focus on basic infrastructure and investment projects with long maturity, which hasn't been the case for most of traditional partners in the last 25 years or so. There's also good evidence that there is less bureaucracy and transaction cost in a lot of the infrastructural development projects, which are either financed or developed directly by uh, Chinese contractors. So more cost-effective, faster delivery. Let's talk about aid tying. Yes, there is a lot of aid tying. A lot of these cons you know, construction projects are tied to Chinese companies, even though, you know, if you talk to the Ethiopian Road Authority, the director will tell you that every single uh, um, uh, contract follows international bidding competition and so on, okay? Uh, now, how that works is a different matter, but the bottom line is that most of these Chinese contractors actually manage to win not only projects that are financed by Chinese institutions, like the Exim Bank or the Development Bank, but also uh, projects which are financed by um, other uh, sources, including the uh, African Development Bank or the World Bank, okay? The question of aid to rogue states, which has been lingering for a long time, well, I've shown evidence before that not really, and all sorts of recipients are there, and it's very hard to establish any link between development aid from China and governance. And there are other questions which are less understood and less researched, which relate to um, elements of soft power and learning. And in fact, that I will come back to this when, when I talk about the actual interest. Why you know, are people interested? And, and there is an issue about learning from the Chinese experience and whether there's a Beijing consensus emerging or not, uh, which raises questions as to whether the Chinese government wants to lead such a consensus, has any interest in doing so, um, and whether there is actually a model or lessons that can be learned or not. So these are, these are open questions which are part of this uh, debate. Let me move to investment. Investment flows are also important, including private investment flows. Um, and there's also in some of the, especially the media uh, literature, this idea that, oh, is China buying the world? 
you know, a lot of people say that. So the evidence seems to suggest no. I mean, it's a bit early to say, to argue that China is buying uh, the world. I mean, if you just look at foreign direct investment flows, outflows, you see that US still massively dominates most of these flows. And indeed, when you look at you know, the proportion of total world flows, um, and you look at other uh, economies, Western economies, still you know, a big chunk. So China has been doing quite well in relative terms in the last few years, but still is uh, a very minor uh, source of foreign direct investment worldwide. Uh, of course, you could argue that, yeah, but actually most of the capital goes to U.S. securities, true. So there's a lot of capital that is exported from China, but it's not really buying things around the world, companies, plantations, um, you know, mineral resources, and, and so on. Um, uh, Peter Nolan you know, also gives another uh, in interesting indicator, if you're interested in oil, that 90% of uh, oil assets are in the hands of national oil companies worldwide. So actually, what is up for grabs is very small. Um, so if you're interested in this, read Peter Nolan's book. It's not my book, so this is for free publicity for Peter Nolan. Is China, buy China buying the world? Lots of data, evidence there. Okay. Foreign direct investment to Africa. Net flows, China and the US. You can see that even at the time of huge rise and emergence, well, still US is providing substantial amounts of FDI. And some of these data are problematic and tricky because if you look at 2012, uh, that year, there was a massive disinvestment from US, uh, in, in US companies from Angola. So that figure in terms of gross terms would be much higher. Um, so you have here problems of comparison. You know, some of the data from for China come from Ofcom, which does not include disinvestments, and the other uh, data includes include disinvestment. But still, uh, you, you can't really see a, a, a substantial evidence of, of a massive flow of, of investment going into, into Africa. although. Anecdotally, we do see this happening on the ground. So we, we do see factories and, and entrepreneurs and private companies and state-owned companies investing increasingly in many African countries. What is quite interesting when you look at the data, and there's a recent uh, study by, by, Feng, by Shen sorry, in 2015, is that uh, a large proportion of these private investments from, from Chinese companies do not go to the natural resource sectors, to the natural extraction. 44% to manufacturing, quite incredible. You know, bear in mind that nobody gave you know, any hope to industrialization for African countries. So now you see that you know, there's a number of countries, not many of them, of course, but Ethiopia is a good example, where you, where you start seeing factories, you know, low cost uh, labor, uh, labor intensive uh, manufacturing sectors starting to, to boom. That's news you know, compared to 10, uh, 20 years ago, where nobody gave a penny for uh, prospects of industrialization in Africa. But that raises another question. I mean, these volumes of investment are interesting and they may uh, change some things, but they're not, they're not large enough. Uh, in relative terms, a lot of the outward foreign direct investment from China doesn't go to Africa. Look at the statistics for 2012, the stock of FDI outside, out of China, only 44%, less than 4% goes to Sub-Saharan Africa and almost 60% goes to East Asia, notably to Southeast Asia. That is the reality. So if you're interested in China buying the world through foreign direct investment, do research in Southeast Asia, but not so much in Africa. Okay, let me now move to the final part of this session, which is about the interest. So why do we have such a big interest, despite the evidence that I've just shown, and 
And of course, there are, you know, there are data which show that we should be interested, but maybe not as much as we are, as most some people are. So I'm going to divide it in four sources of interest, which I think have uh, shaped a lot of the discourses, the narratives, and a lot of the clashes that you see in the literature, in the media, and in political circles. The first thing, which I think is quite important, particularly from an African perspective, and particularly from the perspective of governments, elites, and also some ordinary citizens and, and groups, is the interest or the look for alternatives. Okay? So there has been quite a lot of excitement, not surprisingly. Why? Because there is frustration. There is enormous frustration with the international aid architecture, with you know, 50 years of aid from traditional partners, and a very disappointing record, at least in the eyes of, of many of those who lived uh, um, enough to, to experience this, particularly frustration from the 1980s onwards. So in a sense, the structural adjustment programs in the 80s and then the good governance agenda later on created the conditions for, um, for a sort of innate search for alternatives. So when China emerges as a potential new donor, but also when other emerging donors uh, come, like India, where India is really, really small compared to China, people get excited. So it's not surprising. Dan Large, you know, a few years ago talked about a new triangulation. It's almost like going back to the Cold War uh, conditions. So for the first time since the 1980s, some people in, in, you know, in governments and elites, etc., see, okay, this is one way of shaping foreign relations differently from what they have been in the last 20 years. And we will be able to tap on these resources, whether development aid or other forms of finance from China and other emerging partners, in order to discipline these traditional partners. There's another third element of search for alternatives which goes beyond just the use of aid, and that's policy frameworks. You know, a lot of people are tired of always uh, uh, hearing the same thing, the same kinds of advice, which has, you know, haven't really worked in the last uh, 20 years. Issues about aid delivery, a lot of frustration about, you know, how badly aid delivery works, partly also because of the huge complexities that have been introduced into, 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 into the international aid complex as a result of all the reforms of the 1980s, 90s, and so on. Search for alternative investors, for a sector focus. So a lot of people are saying, well, finally we have a bit of money to build bridges and roads, to build stadiums as well, you know, this kind of stuff. We didn't have this before. Finally, there's a bit of money to develop textile factories, which died in the 80s and 90s, and so on and so forth. So there is a craving for alternatives, you know, in many, many countries. And that explains a lot, a lot of the hysteria about, you know, the emergence of China. There's also the interest in not being left out, okay, of the party. So you now, a number of agencies and, and, and people feel like, well, this is, this is, again, the next big thing. So something's happening, we, we, we shouldn't be left out, even though, you know, the numbers don't add up, you know, as, as I said before. So it's about doing business, okay? So now you see Western business, in, you know, increasingly interested in partnering with Chinese business and with uh, Chinese sources of finance. Traditional aid agencies like DFID, you know, DFID is funding my project, and they've been funding, I don't know how many other projects about China and Africa. What do they want to know? Development banks, the World Bank, no interest in funding large-scale economic infrastructure 20 years ago. Suddenly they're coming back, even thinking about dams. 
They might even finance dance now and partner with China for that purpose. That's new. And the most striking thing was just a few months ago, you've heard about this Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank, right? Which is strongly opposed by the US. In fact, Obama has been trying to you know, push around you know, people you know, saying, oh, don't join. Well, UK you know, came to join, and then Australia, Germany, South Korea, Norway. You know, you know the difficult relations uh, between Norway and China for reasons some of you may know. 14 advanced countries out of the G20 have joined the, what is supposed to be the competitor to the World Bank, okay? So that again is this about what? Doing business, not being left out. I think there is a significant interest going on there which is worth exploring. Now obviously the third set of interest, and it's not the negative one, is managing the threat of a new superpower, okay? And a lot of the rhetoric and a lot of the media reporting has been precisely painting this image of this superpower emerging that is going to uh, provoke hegemonic shifts in global relations, global uh, uh, geopolitics. There are questions here whether this is about uh, multilateralism or is it about new polarizations? Um, but that's, that's on, the, on the table. And that obviously is one of the key drivers, a lot of these, uh, what we could call propaganda wars, you know, the win-win versus the, uh, um, the gloomy, um, uh, gloom doom, okay? Think tanks, media, speeches, some data that have been produced uh, feeding these, these sort of propaganda wars. And let me finish with the last four, you know, the last bit of chunk of sort of interest, which is the one that probably concerns me more, which is interest in actually, you know, understanding global dynamics of economic development and the effects of China, that of these new global dynamics in China, on China and on Africa. That raises a number of empirical questions, which is why I've been reading about the subject for the past 10 years, despite my uh, problems with a lot of the literature that was published during this period. Many open empirical questions, like the ones I've raised before, you know, what are the patterns of FDI from China to Africa compared to other sources of investment? What is the reality of the aid architecture from Chinese institutions compared to others? Um, issues about migration flows, what about the realities of Chinese migration in African countries and so on and so forth. And luckily we do see that there is an increasing, an increasing uh, a stock of scholarship and also increasingly in, in, in media reporting that is trying to tackle these open empirical questions with an open mind rather than in, in, in a polarized way. So uh, I was talking to, to a former student of mine who's now joined Deborah Brautigam's team in the United States and, and they are, have a huge team now of new young scholars interested in this topic. I said, you know, can you ask around why you know, are people interested? So you have three uh, small examples there of some people who uh, are now doing research and PhDs on, on China-Africa relations and related topics. As you can see, there's a lot of uh, um, open questions there, but there's also some idiosyncratic sources of interest. You know, someone who comes from a China specialism and suddenly becomes interested in engagement with, with Africa uh, because of interest in international development. Um, someone who is interested mostly on questions about lessons from the Chinese economic development experience and whether they're applicable or not to in African context and in what circumstances, uh, or you know, people coming from very, very different disciplines, perspectives, and basically ending up with uh, asking open empirical questions. 
And I would find myself in this, in this group um, and trying to move away from the other source of interest that I mentioned before. So, Bastien, what's your interest? Thank you very much, Carlos. That was a, a fascinating uh, insight into the research that you're doing looking at China and Africa. Um, my own research, as uh, Angelica mentioned at the beginning, looks at China and Central Asia in particular, and China and South Asia. And I've done a lot of research on the ground in the sort of five stunned countries, North Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India, looking at China's interests there. And it is similar, but different in many ways to what you're talking about when you're looking at Africa, because of the physical proximity to China there's a much more sort of immediate sense on domestic affairs and has that sort of direct linkage. But, but there are sort of lots of similarities. There are a few points which leapt at me from your presentation which I'll fire off, um, which hopefully might get the sort of discussion going and then we'll open that up to the crowd because I'm sure people have many more other questions that they'd like to um, uh, get to. The first was, you, know, you made the point that a lot of these, uh, the money that you saw going out from China was going to some of the poorer <coughs> markets and poorer countries. Well, I wonder sometimes, is that because those are the ones that are still available? Because there has been no Western interest there for whatever reasons, lack of infrastructure, lack of anything. Um, and so that's where kind of the Chinese money will end up going. Mm -hmm. The second point I wonder, and you kind of touched upon this a bit, is this question of, is this really aid? You know, I mean, the Chinese money, if I look at a lot of Chinese money that goes out, it's mostly link loans, it's mostly financing that's sort of mm -hmm. supporting Chinese companies to go into XYZ countries. Um, what's always fascinating to me is, you know, uh, I've spoken to lots of people in Mokong, not lots, some people in Mokong, <laughs> in Beijing, um, and they point out to me, you know, the Chinese aid budget comes out of Mokong. Mm -hmm. It's ultimately a Ministry of Commerce project. And actually, the sort of pure aid money is really minuscule in terms of the actual Chinese money that's going out. And if you actually look at the actual places where most aid money is going, it's places like DPRK um, or Afghanistan, which are the two, I think, biggest aid recipients, like pure aid recipients from China. A lot of the African money that goes out is linked loans. It's financing to support, uh, it's Exim Bank going out there to finance a mine, or I don't know, something like that. Mm -hmm. The other thing I tie into this is this new um, big Chinese outward push that Xi Jinping has been talking about since he's been in power, this One Belt, One Road, the Idao Ilu, the Belt and Road Initiative, which is sort of the big foreign policy vision that Xi Jinping has laid out, which is very much about building these economic trade and infrastructure corridors that's sort of emanating out from China, going through Central Asia, through Pakistan, through um, mm -hmm. out into the seas. And if you look at some of the maps that are published by Xinhua, mm -hmm. by the way, we haven't had a formal map published by the Chinese government, <laughs> NDRC, who's the actual actor that created all this mm -hmm. stuff, um, mapping out what this Belt and Road looks like. So a lot of what we're seeing is kind of media coverage around it, but somebody even touched into Africa. Mm -hmm. Kenya, I know, is considered one of the places where it's meant to touch down. Nigeria, I think, is another. Um, mm -hmm. But that money is definitely not aid. This mm -hmm. is 100% infrastructure development. This is about helping Chinese companies. This is, and there's a whole dimension to the sort of One Belt and Road Initiative, which is that this is in fact China worrying about an overcapacity at home, worrying about the fact that you've had a boom time of China construction in the past few years. That seems to be slowing down. Well, you don't want all these companies to go out of business. That's going to cause all sorts of ruptures at home. Mm -hmm. Well, let's start placing money outside the country that they can then apply for, that they can then go use and actually go out and start mm -hmm. doing stuff somewhere else and therefore not go out of business. I wonder kind of how, how, how you sort of react to that. The, the, other, the other aspect, I, I think, which is often gets lost in this sort of discussion, in particular in China and Africa, uh, there was a really interesting report that the RAND Corporation put out, um, I can't remember if it was this year, last year, 
it was fairly recent, that looked at Chinese uh, relations with Africa. And what was really interesting about it um, was that the point that they made was that while there is sometimes a perception that China is this sort of bulldozer force, that these countries have no choice but to sort of bend the poor, uh, because of the, you know, the overwhelming mm. size of it, the, the, the amount of people, the sheer force of it, the fact they've got no other options. What was really interesting is if you looked at some of the countries where China was having uh, a substantial amount of influence in Africa, they were able to hold their own. Mm -hmm. They were really able to push back. And you saw the Chinese companies and the Chinese government reacting to events on the ground in such a manner that ended up with those countries coming out with a much better deal than they seemingly initially would have walked into. Mm -hmm. Now, in my research in China and Central Asia, I don't find that to be the case, to be honest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> those countries get bulldozed over, and I think that's a lot to do with the physical proximity. Mm -hmm. But it is really interesting in Africa because I do think that there you are looking at some countries, in some cases, I think Zambia is the one example which uh, springs mm -hmm. out of my mind, where they have actually managed to kind of hold their own against it. Mm. Um, and I think that's a, that's a really interesting aspect and something really underexplored. Yeah. And actually something that I argue that the British government could learn from mm -hmm. <laughs> in terms of trying to figure out how we're going to structure our relationship with, uh, with China. Yeah. Um, I say this in the wake of the <laughs> recent visit, which I'm sure we all saw, laid yeah. out the red carpet for uh, Xi Jinping. Um, and the final uh, point I would touch upon, and I'd be really interested to hear a bit more of your thoughts about, is you know, when I look at, uh, as I say, a lot of my research looks at China's relations with Western Asia, Central and South Asia. What's interesting to me there, the sort of, the, the, the sort of paradigm conclusion that I came to around this was that this was China's inadvertent empire. Mm -hmm. This was a place where it was increasingly becoming the most consequential player on the ground, whether it liked it or not, because mm -hmm. of the amount of money and effort that it was putting into these places. And the thing about that is that if you become the big player on the ground, you're going to become politically responsible in some way, shape, or form. So you may not want to, you may want to continue this sort of net of a non-interference foreign policy, but you are becoming a consequential player. And I'd argue, actually, in Africa, you can already see the example of how that has come back to hit them. Mm. The example of Sudan, South Sudan, where as soon as you see those two countries have media issues, the leaders head straight to Beijing to try to get Beijing to mediate and moderate this. And so to me, this is a whole interesting question of, China may not want to have this political influence and may in fact continue to advance this rhetoric of, oh, we don't do this. Actually, they're having to do it because mm -hmm. they are the most significant player there on the ground. Yeah. Thank you. So that's a few points which leapt out at me. Um, maybe uh, if you react, yeah. have some reactions to some of those, and then in the meantime, I'll stare out of the crowd. And if any of you want to ask any questions, please catch my eye. And, and I promise I will be in tune. Yeah. Let me just try to briefly um, react to your question. I think they're very important questions and, and, and also. Uh, suggest the um, need for clarification. Uh, I think the first point of clarification, which is important, is uh, was quite clear when I say development aid, I was talking about aid, not about uh, other forms of finance, official finance. And, and you're right, uh, other forms of official finance are quite important. In fact, according to this uh, data set that I mentioned before, if you take the 2000-2013 period, um, about 25-30% uh, of the whole package is uh, aid, is what you can call aid according to the OECD definition, and all the rest is other forms of official finance. It is quite interesting that the authors of this um, uh, work, they have a chunk which they call vague, because they're not really sure how to classify according to the usual definitions. But as you say, I mean, it's, it's quite striking that a lot of these official finance, and notably a lot of these loans coming from Exim Bank, China Development Bank, do go to infrastructural development. and, and so there's, there's a clear push there. As I said before, there is a clear perception from policymakers and experts in these sectors that that is the only reliable source of finance for the foreseeable future. But that is sort of, you know, 
having a herd effect, as I said before, and other uh, agencies, other institutions are trying to you know, step in and say, okay, we want to contribute as well, which is likely to have quite a significant impact on infrastructural development in Africa. That is not going to be negligible. And you can see already in some countries, and certainly in Ethiopia, that Angola is, is, is absolutely crazy. And you could argue whether you know, all these infrastructural projects you know, are the best options or the best choices or not, which takes me to one of the other questions or issues that you raised is agency. Absolutely. What we see from the last 10 years is that elites and governments are not passive recipients of these sort of bulldozing machines. They've been negotiating, they've been creating new frameworks, they've been renegotiating deals, and you have several examples in Angola in particular, and Angola has a very um, um, uh, powerful uh, branch of the government, which is not always very well understood, is Sonangol, the oil company. And Sonangol has been able to strike, you know, pretty good deals with Chinese companies in the past, uh, uh, in the past 10 years. Um, also, if you think about the Ethiopian government, the Ethiopian government is, is not one that can be bulldozed easily. You know, I can tell you that. Not by China, not by any other uh, um, uh, partner. And they've been choosing their own um, projects for whatever reasons, some political, some uh, less political, and they've been actually driving a lot of these, uh, a lot of these uh, relations. So that is a very important point, and, and it's definitely worth emphasizing. Um, this drive, I think Central Asia is particular, and probably you're right that you know, the, the relations are stronger there, and probably the implications are, are much bigger than, than in Africa, for reasons that you also mentioned, you know, domestic uh, security concerns and, and so on. Um, the going out policy, obviously, is, is something that cannot be dismissed or neglected, even in the African context. Um, and, and I think it does require some understanding of how China wants to situate itself, what Peter Nolan call, calls rebalancing uh, for the next you know, 25, 50 years. So, for example, if China is to basically build on the huge infrastructural development of the past 20 years and the champions, construction, civil engineering champions that have been creating along the way, they have to go out, okay, in order to reach the sort of, the sort of scale that can make them global, really, truly global competitors. The same goes to the manufacturing sector. It is quite clear that now a number of sectors, subsectors in China, become obsolete. So either they die or they move out. And this is exactly what is happening. Low technology sectors and so on, in a context where high technology is receiving, is receiving massive priority. So that is going to have a massive impact. So when I, when I talk about the prospects for industrialization in Africa, it's quite paradoxical that a few years ago, everyone used to say, well, China is dumping consumer goods onto Africa. This is killing whatever industry was there. But what is happening now is probably the opposite, that you know, Chinese companies are, for pure survival, they will have to move and invest in countries like Ethiopia and look for other opportunities uh, of accumulation. The problem, as, as Peter uh, suggests, is that when you look at global business and how, gl how global business is organized and what they call the systems integrators, the really, the truly big companies, China is still quite far uh, uh, away from reaching those levels, from reaching that sort of level of being a, a truly uh, you know, big emerging economic superpower uh, in relation to big transnational corporations. This is part of the story, and that is going to take a lot of time. Okay. Um, finally, on, on, on the question of, of inadvertent empire and being politically responsible, I think you mentioned a good example. Sudan is a clear example where you can see that this uh, you know, holy principle of non-interference is basically ditched uh, um, 
because of the imperatives of the time. And Dan Large and I say Stephen Chan as well have, have argued that if there was a player that was quite significant in both striking deals between the North and the South and then shaping uh, the, the sort of process towards independence of South Sudan, and also if there was a player which had some kind of impact on the Darfur situation, that was China. How that happened, you know, that was sort of behind the scenes, obviously. It couldn't be seen as, as direct interference. But that's likely to be uh, an important element in sort of future engagement. Thank you. Any I read a recent article that said that uh, infrastructure investment and whatnot is down on China at 84% yeah. so far this year, but that um, the sort of investment in raw material exports has gotten yeah. way bigger. How do you see that affecting both Yeah, that was in the Financial Times, I think. Um, and yeah, as I say, I mean, it does show that these trends that we've seen until now, uh, sometimes people tend to assume that, you know, this is going to go on forever. Um, and then there you go, there's a, there's a clear indicator that, well, things don't go forever. And the changes in the economic climate in China at the moment are going to have quite a significant impact on some of these uh, commitments. I mean, the authorities keep pledging you know, large amounts of money and billions of uh, credits and, you know, long uh, lines, etc. cetera. Uh, but the reality is that uh, finance for infrastructure has to uh, give returns and it is risky. And, you know, in times of uncertainty, these risks are not going to be taken. Um, so I don't have a crystal ball, so I'm not sure whether that, you know, 84% decline is a structural break and we're gonna see uh, much smaller amounts of finance available for infrastructure. I think probably there's going to be some fluctuation over time and certainly not the kind of steady exponential growth that we've seen in the last 10 years. Yeah. Hi. As neo-colonialism. Yeah. Okay. And as far and uh, what do you think of the effectiveness of that department, like the new new way of expanding market and aid, as if kind of like China didn't have a very uh, transparent track of the funds and the aid. So what do you think? Mm -hmm. Is it? Um, I'm not sure if I understand the, the question, but let me just try to. I think this whole issue of neocolonialism is, is, is misplaced generally. Uh, I think it's actually an insult to history that these comparisons are drawn. If you, you know, think about you know, colonialism in North America and, and the genocide of you know, uh, entire populations, um, you know, this, the grab for resources that happened in, you know, from the 16th century onwards. So, I mean, if you're com comparing those sort of situations, which we call colonialism, okay, to the current situation, 
which is pretty much the basic dynamics of global capitalism, whether it's China or other countries sort of emerging and, 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 and leading this process, I don't think that word, that term is appropriate to describe this kind of situation. So even when people talk about, you know, the clash of cultures, you know, Chinese migrating in large numbers uh, to African countries and, you know, to what extent they, you know, they bulldoze in their way into, it's not really happening uh, that way. Um, so um, some of these encounters or interactions are likely to have some kind of effects on society. There's no doubt about that. Okay, whether it's in the form of you know what is being invested and where uh, people coming, etc., etc., and these sort of interactions are always contradictory. You know, they have you know a lot of positive elements and a lot of clashes and and, and, and problems uh, embedded. So, but I would I would warn you against um, you know making these parallels between. And I, I know that this term is very frequently used in the sort of in the third block that I mentioned before, and to go, oh, this is new form of colonialism, new form of imperialism, you know, an empire hasn't been formed yet. Okay, let's wait and see. <laughs> okay. Well, China is a middle kingdom, right? So <laughs> it's sitting there already. But I would ask a question. Um, I would uh, one thing more specifically about uh, about this issue of Chinese companies bringing their own workforces. Okay. I mean, you can look at a lot of these places, and there is a question that certainly I've seen in Central Asia, and I hear is an issue in Africa as well, whereby you know. Uh, what is the benefit to the locals beyond getting the big piece of infrastructure or the factory uh, when there's no actual, they don't get to participate in it, you don't get engineers learning out of it, it's just you know a bunch of hundreds of Chinese workers who will arrive, build the thing and then disappear six months later. Okay. Um, yes, well, my project is about that. So hopefully I will answer your question in three years time. <laughs> but um, anecdotal evidence suggests that um, no, um, a first there is variation but if you take a country like Ethiopia you're not going to see you do see Chinese workers but not in the proportions that many people think uh, construction projects probably more than manufacturing I will give you some data if you want big factory in Ethiopia 3,500 workers 120 Chinese uh, Turkish company 8,500 com uh, workers uh, 200 of them Turkish um, you know, uh, Indian company, same thing. So actually, you know, it is not in the interest of this Chinese company to import quite expensive Chinese labor. Angola is a you know, case in point. You see, you know, there are projects and Golan government establish a framework whereby um, unskilled, semi-skilled labor in construction projects, at least 70% had to be Angolan. In a number of projects, this could not be achieved, partly because the imperative for the Angolan government was to actually get those projects finished very quickly. And what happened is that, well, the skilled manpower they were looking for could not be found. And then that raises issues about how do you develop these sort of skills? How do you develop this, this labor force? So, and things are changing quite fast. So if you look at the tendency, the trends in Angola, definitely these proportions are changing quite fast. And there is a very, very strong economic argument for this. So um, again, it is an empirical question. It's one of these empirical questions that I mentioned before. And hopefully we'll see that uh, there is quite a lot of variation. So national context will. So you, the question will be, why is it so different in Ethiopia compared to Angola? They're the same Chinese construction companies, et cetera, but they're quite different modus operandi. Okay? So I think that is the interesting question. Oh, you go first. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> 
about three client questions. First, talking a little bit about your uh, look about the interest in China uh, in Africa, and then maybe some more about looking at some of the projects that we see actually in Africa. And the first is uh, primarily when you stood up the, the slide and when you showed the data from UNCTAD, the figures of FDI quote, where China quote is not at all dwarfed by the investment from, from the United States. Mm -hmm. um, but we did see, at least in the report, and I think the World Investment Report made a big deal of it this time around, that this is the largest South-South type of investment we've seen in world history. And I kind of wanted to know, maybe is that something where that's kind of feeding into the narrative when you see this kind of thing? Mm -hmm. uh, of course, which leads to the important empirical questions to ask, yeah. which maybe your thoughts on that. Uh, second, as well, when you're looking at these projects in the course of your research, um, have you primarily seen the actual levels of where the financing is coming from? Is it primarily the export-import banks and Mossbaum or other actual national development banks, or do you actually see local Chinese banks? Like, do you see Bank of Beijing or other one-stop commercial banks mm. investing in these projects? And, and finally, do you see them actually establish there to further invest the actual foreign companies that go, or, or actually the domestic kind of companies that are there, and actually see these new Chinese banks actually operating? Okay. Uh, Quickly, I mean, the first question, yes, I mean, it, it is undeniable, but I would like to move beyond China. It is undeniable that when you look at the World Investment Reports and, and recent data, you could see that the proportion coming from the U.S. has been declining steadily, and also the proportion from other uh, high-income OECD countries have been declining. So when you put all these new sources of investment together, for example, Brazil has been quite a significant, as a source of investment, quite a significant number of African countries. India uh, cannot be uh, uh, left out. So you put some of these all together, and you see if there is some change, okay? And, and this, is, this is something you can also see on the ground. So the burden manufacturing sector now in Ethiopia, the Chinese are there, but certainly not the only ones. You see, uh, you know, at least, um, um, you know, almost 100 Turkish companies operating in, in different sectors. Um, you see several Indian companies, lots of companies coming from South Asia, you know, uh, quite quickly moving into, into these emerging sectors. Now, Ethiopia might be actually an exception. There are very few countries in Africa that uh, have such a bold uh, in industrialization strategy and drive. Right? So it's, it's, in a sense, uh, an outlier until now. But this can, these things can happen in other countries as well. Uh, I don't have enough knowledge or expertise about, you know, banks and social finance. What I see from but if you look at the construction projects, infrastructural developments in African countries where the volumes are very big, there is a clear dominance of these two players, Exim Bank and the China, China Development Bank. Clear dominance, okay? Which also explains why um, in uh, overseas uh, uh, contracted projects, it is state-owned Chinese corporations that dominate as opposed to private companies. Whereas you see many more private companies, proportionately, in uh, the manufacturing sector, okay? So you don't see, I mean, I haven't seen, you know, other banks and, and, and access to finance for ordinary, you know, nationals or companies in the countries that I've, that I've seen. In Angola, you also have uh, the, the China Investment Fund, which is a completely different story, uh, and it has quite a substantial presence. It's always had quite a substantial presence the last 10 years, and that's very different from the other sources. Uh, 
after before it's properly before the uh, broadest amount, the zero gen uh, hamdun or the uh, additional, is uh, a uh, natural safety risk. You know, yeah. Uh, What coalition? Sorry, I'm a bit. The European government. Yeah, because okay. you expect the uh, okay. uh, money movement. Yeah, yeah. Not so effective as uh, this kind of government is doing. Yeah. Media is uh, not uh, growing mm -hmm. as freely. Okay. So I did the uh, kind of interview by European to see uh, about uh, com limited to more controls in the past years, but we are much more uh, accepted in the African countries. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure if I understood the question, but is, is it about uh, reactions from European investors or European governments and, and to this rise? So what's the European reaction? Yeah. <coughs> well, um, <coughs> it's it's a mixed reaction, I think. You know, um, it dep a depends on what actors you're looking at. If you're looking at governments or uh, private sector, uh, as I said before, some of the private sector see opportunities, and they're basically jumping, you know, to to sort of not to lose the the the, the train. Um, European governments have a sort of, at least until now, mixed reaction. I mean, some European governments don't even engage. Um, the ones that really tend to engage more, or at least in terms of trying to understand the, these trends and trying to understand the consequences, uh, in my view, are uh, Britain. So DFID has been following this for, for a long time and, and has been investing quite a lot of resources in understanding these processes. In France, uh, there's quite a lot of emphasis in, in in the France-Afrique circles about you know, what uh, the emergence of China can, uh, what kind of impact can that have in terms of the very strong links and relations between elites and especially certain regimes and the French, uh, um, and the French government. Um, so it's a mixture of uh, fear, okay, uh, but also of opportunity. And I think at the moment there uh, seems to be a trend towards you know, trying to grab some of these opportunities while you know we try to uh, sort of say well you need to be careful there needs to be much more regulation and so on and so forth uh, what we saw in the you know the latest uh, aid conference in south korea and busan uh, there was an expectation that there was going to be a lot of debate about effectiveness and how oecd donors should sort of uh, reform the aid structures in order to make recipient countries um, um, less burdened by you know the the complexity of aid delivery and interestingly, a lot of the emphasis actually shifted, a lot of the focus of the discussion shifted towards bringing China, not only China, but also other emerging donors to the OECD for, by basically signing protocols and agreements to make sure that, for example, simple things like MOFCOM reporting about aid figures in the way that other OECD donors report, so that we actually know what is aid and what is not aid. Um, so I think the, the sort of strategy is to try to bring these emerging donors into the club somehow. And that's also, I think, what the World Bank is sort of trying, trying to do rather than confrontation, okay? So the example I gave before about this Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank, which is supposed to be the competitor to the World Bank, 
suggests that this is really the kind of trend that is, you know, many governments are following, certainly in Europe, just trying to jump and participate. So if you are in the club, then you will be able to perhaps control or have some understanding of what's going on. I think we have time for one more question. If someone has a really burning one, right there. Uh, Madam, really please, maybe next to you. First, thank you very much for the interesting presentation and like for like for not that like for the data you presented. I mean, there is a lot of anecdotal evidence, as you say, and there are people resorting to creating databases of like Chinese aid using using media sources. So you know, like there is all sorts of information out there. Um, a quick question: Given China's economic slowdown, changes in mm -hmm. the Chinese uh, situation in the global economy at the moment. What are, leaving aside the threats, what are the opportunities for Africa? Mm -hmm. Is there any opportunity in terms of diversification, uh, um, moving away from, uh, from natural resources and that sort of thing? Mm. How do you see yeah. um, this change? Yeah. Thank you, and maybe into that you can wrap any final thoughts. Yeah. Haven't been captured yet, but we need to take a look. <laughs> no, I think that's, that's an important question, and that's also what I, what I tried to say before, is that um, even in the context of slowdown, uh, actually the slowdown itself, can unleash forces that will provide opportunities for industrialization in countries where what, you know, this was um, um, uh, a fantasy only you know, 10, 20 years ago. So for the first time, you do see that actually African countries can industrialize, at least some of them, that there are ways and conditions that can be created, and partly because of these changes in the global dynamic of capitalism, but also because of the institutions that have been created around these global flows that are creating the financial space and also the policy space to precisely drive uh, policies which were you know, pretty much unthinkable uh, in many countries some time ago. Now, when I say this, and I think this is sort of my final thought, is that one of the main problems with a lot of these, uh, all of these debates and these discussions and I'm a culprit in this particular event, is that we always talk about China and Africa. So I'd rather talk about China and Ethiopia and Angola and uh, Ghana and Tanzania and Mozambique, because actually, when you look at these specific cases in isolation, you do see huge variation and huge differences across cases. So it's actually nowadays, it's even more difficult to generalize about these China-Africa links than it was 10 years ago. Final thought. Thank you very much for that, Carlos. Before I get everyone to thank you for giving us a really rich presentation on the Friday evening, uh, really stimulating everyone for a very exciting night out, I'm sure. I would like to uh, briefly uh, add a couple of words about Young China Watchers. First of all, thank you to the uh, China Africa Center, uh, for, I'm sorry, for the Center for African Studies, <laughs> for letting us uh, do this event with you. We're very grateful for the opportunity and we're looking forward to doing many more uh, potentially along these lines. Young China Watch is an organization that has been around for a few years now. It was founded in China a few years ago. We have now nine chapters around the world, including here in London, uh, a few in the States, but in Brussels, one in Shanghai, in Beijing, and in Hong Kong. There's nine in total. I'm not going to list them all because I'll forget one, I'm sure. Um, we do events fairly regularly here in London. Um, our next one is going to be on the 20th of November. We're going to look in particular at this One Belt and Road initiative that the Chinese government is doing, and we're doing it um, I think somewhere near the London Stock Exchange. I can't remember the exact details of the location. But if you'd like to know more about it, you can visit our website, which is conveniently youngchinawatches.com. Or you can talk to myself, or Sue Ann, or Hillary, um, who are the other co-founders and runners of the organization. Um, I think all that remains to do is to thank Carlos very much for giving us such a rich presentation. Thank you. Thank you.